Mama, what's a podcast? Well, it's when a group of men love their opinions very much. Hi everyone, welcome back to Feminist Talk Religion. My name is Nayara Leon. I'm an international member of FSR and I just graduated with an MA at the University of Iowa and I'll be joining a PhD in Religion and Theology at King's College London next spring. Today, I and other members of the FTR podcast would like to share with you a series of panels that happened in the last meetings of the American Academy of Religion and that have amazing and impactful conversations about feminism and religion. The first episode that you will listen now is a conversation about engaged scholarship and feminist practices that departs from Juliana Hammer's book titled Peaceful Families, American Muslim Efforts Against Domestic Violence. This conversation debates the purpose of feminist scholarship. So, how can feminist scholars produce socially engaged works? Are writers about topics related to gender-based violence also activists? Stay tuned to hear the contributions of Yuliana and also Kayla Wheeler, Sedia Jacob, Tracy West, with the mediation of Brittany Lenford. Welcome everyone to the Women and Religion Unit, the importance of engaged feminist scholarship, a cross-disciplinary discussion of Yuliana Hammer's Peaceful Families, American Muslim Efforts Against Domestic Violence. I'm so grateful for everyone for joining us today. My name is Brittany Landorf and I am a PhD student in Islamic Studies at Emory University. I'm gonna briefly introduce our author of the book that we'll be talking about today, as well as our fellow panelists um, before uh, Dr. Hammer will begin with a brief opening remarks. Juliana Hammer teaches Islamic studies and religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She specializes in the study of gender and sexuality in Muslim societies and communities, race and gender in US Muslim communities, as well as contemporary Muslim thought, activism, and practice in Sufism. She is the author of several books, including Peaceful Families, which is the topic of today's roundtable conversation. Our first respondent is Tracy West. Tracy West is Professor of Christian Ethics and African American Studies at Drew University Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. Her activism, teaching, and research include issues of gender, racial, and sexual justice, and have particularly focused on gender violence. Her most recent publication is Solidarity and Defiant Spirituality, Africana Lessons on Racism, Religion, and Ending Gender Violence. Next, Sadia Yacoub will be speaking. Sadia Yacoub is an assistant professor of religion at Williams College. Her research focuses on gender, childhood, enslavement, and legal personhood in Islamic law. She has a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Islamic Law on the contribution made by gender scholars to the study of Islamic law and is currently working on a book titled Reading Gender in Early Islamic Law. Finally, Kayla Renee Wheeler is an assistant professor of gender and diversity studies at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
She is an expert in contemporary Black Islam and African-American religious history. She is currently writing a book on contemporary Black Muslim fashion in the U.S. I will now give Dr. Hemmer the floor to introduce her particularly powerful um, and brilliant book. Thank you. Um, thank you, Brittany, for the introductions. And thank you again um, to Dr. Kayla Wheeler for putting this roundtable conversation together. I'm honored that my book is the topic of a roundtable, and I am very grateful for everyone who agreed to be in conversation with me. I got five minutes and there were several questions I was supposed to answer that are not actually directly about what the book is about. So I will work with the assumption that the panelists have in fact read the book and will based on that have a conversation about it with me. And so instead of telling you directly about the book and the chapters and all of those kinds of things, um, I wanna say a little bit about why I wrote the book and what I intended with it um, and then link those two pieces, um, which is not very difficult, to the question um, that is sort of the theme of this panel, which is engaged feminist scholarship. My concern about domestic violence and especially domestic violence in Muslim communities or in Muslim families in the US context was actually what I would describe as somewhat accidental in the sense that um, I'm not someone who's experienced domestic abuse. And through that avenue, um, like many of the advocates I studied have um, sort of entered this as a topic of, of scholarship or conversation. However, domestic violence came up repeatedly in earlier work that I did on um, feminist Quran interpretation, Muslim women's activism and woman-led prayer. And there was a moment where I realized that with great frustration, um, this was about a decade ago, that what I now call patriarchal Muslim scholars have pushed back against feminist Muslim scholarship, um, often within a framework of um, feminist interpretations being so much on the margin that they're not even really part of the spectrum of Islam. And it seemed to me that particularly in conversations about a chronic verse that um, is sort of at the center of a debate about um, physical disciplining of wives, that it would be important to see whether those patriarchal scholars would draw a line somewhere around their support for patriarchal interpretations. Because I've been interested in Muslim women's activism in particular for um, many, many years now, um, deciding that what I was most interested in was not more scholarship or was not sort of a discursive, discursive level um, of scholarly or religious um, production, but to look at actual activism at work, um, grassroots work um, in a variety of ways that Muslims were um, doing against domestic violence. I will say that um, it's been a difficult project. It, um, there are many reasons why it took me over a decade um, from the inception of this project to it being published last year. And um, I think part of it is that no one wants to talk about domestic violence. Um, this is sort of an, an experience that, that has accompanied me over the course of the last decade of, of doing this work. And um, 
there is a connection here that I will make now um, to engaged scholarship because I've also learned from this project um, that it isn't possible, at least for me it wasn't, as a feminist to write about gender-based violence and not be actively against it. So in other words, there isn't an uninvested mode of scholarly production um, at least I haven't found one. And so, so this project, especially more so than other work that I've done, um, is, is engaged activist scholarship because that is the only way I can see it happening. One of the really important goals for me was to highlight and actually make known that there is sort of Muslim anti-domestic violence movement, that there are organizations and activists and networks of people who work on that every day of their lives. And most of that work, if not all of that work is invisible. It became a little bit visible briefly in 2009, early 2009, around um, the gruesome murder of Asya Zubair, which um, is how I open the book. And it was in that context um, that I became aware of many, many of these organizations um, because they are really not sort of in, in the public sphere, in the public eye. An additional um, goal I had was in itself to raise awareness of domestic violence as an issue, not only for Muslims, but generally in American society. And that became more important as I became more familiar with um, strategies and framings I also became more and more aware of how little most people know about domestic violence. The third goal was to look specifically at religious frameworks for activism and work against domestic abuse. And within that, there are some themes that sort of emerge in the book. One is the relationship between religion and culture, which um, I would like to think I offer a really nuanced treatment of in the ways in which that plays out in in, in, that, in that movement. The second one is the significance of anti-Muslim hostility in its connection to racism and what that has to do with being able to do this work or not being able to do it. And the third and really broad one was to further explore the relationship between Islam and patriarchy, which is a feminist project that I've had for a long time. And um, the answers in the book, I think, to that particular one are really complicated because I struggle as a feminist scholar with how to, with how to deal with the fact that domestic violence is not only, I'll put only in brackets, it's not only a feminist um, project um, to work on. One can be against domestic violence and not be a feminist. And most of the advocates I studied would not identify as feminists. And so what ended up happening, and that wasn't quite intentional in that way, but has been highlighted in some of the responses I've gotten to the book, is that the book also um, ends up functioning as an extended reflection on the ethics of scholarship, especially on scholarship about issues of gender-based violence. And for me, it was also a decade-long self questioning about the purpose of my scholarship. And that's perhaps the part where I have the least sort of obvious answer. And so, um, as I already said, um, the connection with engaged scholarship is obvious to me. There was no other way I could have done that work, I think. 
I will also say, um, because we're at a scholarly conference, um, that that type of engaged scholarship is still being met with enormous skepticism, um, with very, very patronizing types of attitudes that I have encountered over the time that I've been working on this. And so I want to make space here in this conversation and hope that we can get back to that, to the challenges of doing feminist work in religious studies specifically. Um, our field, I think, has pretty conservative tendencies. And so I have experienced the engaged part or the activist part of my scholarship as a continuous struggle rather than something that I at any point could take for granted. Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for those opening remarks. Um, our next speaker will be Tracy West. So it is my privilege to be on this panel. Um, and I just want to begin by um, just thanking Dr. Hammer for this amazing book. And um, since you said, uh, I assume that people have read it, I just want to show off all of my marks in the book, uh, I mean, all of my stickies, so that yes, I have read the book, and I have so many comments. I'm in conversation with you in so many ways, but I'm just going to say a couple of things right now because the point of this um, time is to have more of a conversation. So thank you for this amazing book. Um, in Peaceful Families, uh, Dr. Hammer skillfully provides a wealth of rarely considered lived examples of what Muslim leaders are doing and saying in their roles as advocates and service providers who respond to domestic violence and abuse within United States Muslim communities. This is engaged feminist scholarship because of its gender-based violence subject matter. Now it chooses a particular form of gender-based violence because gender-based violence certainly includes many forms of sexual assault. It can include gendered hate violence that targets LGBTQIA plus peoples. It can include sexual harassment. It can include childhood sexual abuse. But this really focuses on domestic violence and abuse. Because of its explicitly named feminist research method, that's what makes it engaged feminist scholarship, um, which constitute um, Dr. Hummer's interviews with activists and service providers that are shared with the reader through self-reflective narrative accounts that insightfully examine the meaning of her self-identification as a feminist and the meaning that gets produced as she engages, the meaning that gets produced as this dialogue takes place, uh, this encounter with her interviewees. This is engaged feminist scholarship, not only because of its subject and its method, but also because of its production of socially engaged transformative knowledge Dr. Hummer enables readers to learn about how ethical communal change occurs. She teaches us what responsive religious practices that communally, communally address domestic violence and abuse look and sound like within actual community settings. And also 
how to apply a feminist lens to critically assess the leadership choices that are made in those settings. Today, there's a lot I would like to talk about, but let me give you a couple of examples. I would love to talk about the meaning of certain commitments and strategies that are deployed in this engaged feminist scholarship. So let me, I wanna read a quote here from the book. Uh, quote, my own impulse to critique is not born from a need to deconstruct the advocates, constructions, or even the academic tendency to analyze, to deconstruction, but is rather a product of my own feminist approach to gender roles and models for Muslims. As a Muslim feminist scholar and activist, I am concerned about the implications of a family model that legitimates patriarchy as God's intent and endorses hierarchical family models as long as the husband and leader of the family does not abuse his power and inflict injustice and oppression on his wife and children, unquote. That's uh, from page 112. So for engaged feminist scholarship, based on this example, What's the difference between critique and deconstruction? How and why does the specific scholarly context of a Muslim researcher engaging Muslim activists, advocates, and service providers on the particular issue of their work in addressing domestic violence and abuse require a distinction between deconstruction and critique? Why does it necessitate, as Dr. Hammer has demonstrated, a refusal to deconstruct the work of Muslim advocates, together with a firm commitment to feminist critique as a means of developing an innovative feminist method of uh, engaged scholarship about ending violence? Secondly, I also find the scholarly significance, significance, excuse me, of the feminist scholarship modeled in this book reflected in its exploration of the qualities of vulnerability and certainty. Both are demanded in the politics of creating the kind of change that addresses and ends domestic violence and abuse in Muslim communities and beyond. Again, I wanna read a quote from the book. I'm on page 227. Quote, Muslim feminists share their critique of patriarchy with other, including secular feminists, who in turn have profoundly influenced mainstream anti-DV efforts in the United States. In a climate of increasing anti-Muslim hostility, as well as the marginalization of religious efforts against domestic abuse, it is common to find Muslim efforts dismissed and marginalized in the DV mainstream, while Muslim advocates who identify as feminists or with feminist critiques of patriarchy as the cause for DV find themselves alienated and silenced in Muslim community contexts. 
And then the text goes on to say, the specific debate about domestic violence in Muslim communities and the efforts to raise awareness, provide services and ultimately end it, are reflections of broader trends of several kinds. And then there's a list of broader trends, such as uh, the changing of practices and discourses connected to gender and sexuality. I use this as an example of how Dr. Hummer teaches the reader how attention to the particularities of Muslim feminist positionality in their critiques of patriarchy and the particularities of Muslim anti-domestic violence efforts uh, to end as well as the debates about domestic violence. That particularity marks this work as characterized by the risks of vulnerability to hostility and being dismissed together with a bold certainty about the dangerous harms of patriarchal, patriarchal control. And that gives us the capacity to break open our ability to recognize broader trends. Particularity breaks open our ability to recognize broader trends. This is a marker of engaged feminist scholarly uh, 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 scholarship. Last example, invitation. Engaged feminist scholarly work showcases the art of invitation to engage. This work showcases precisely that art. I am interested in discussing the ways in which issues of race and racism are inherent aspects of engaged feminist scholarship. That's what I would love for us to talk about if we have a chance. My own work on anti-Black racism and gender violence directly overlaps with Dr. Hummer's project, uh, though I primarily focused on anti-Black racism. Dr. Hummer's risk-taking method calls forth my own consciousness about what it means for me to be an African-American Christian cis, cis woman reader whose scholarship and teaching has emphasized gender-based violence mainly within African-American Christian communities. I too have experienced the challenge of navigating the political risks of our white racist US context as I publicly call attention to intimate violence by black men against black women. But her approach includes such an explicit refusal to ignore the complications in how the personal is political and knowledge production. It invites me, I feel invited to want to talk much more with Dr. Hummer and all the panelists actually about the politics of race, such as how her positionality as a white Muslim woman scholar studying leadership of varied racially and ethnically non-white communities, how did it show up? How did she make choices about naming race and ethnicity or not naming the race and ethnicity of the leaders that she interviewed, um, of the communities um, in which she um, engaged and went to workshops and, and worked with for so many years? Uh, I, the, the text, um, it, 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 in its discussions of racism and xenophobia and how they hinder public conversations about domestic violence, the text emphasizes erasures of African-American Muslims from the representation of American Muslims. So it gives examples um, of, of race and racism and xenophobia and how they play off of each other 
um, and in the ways in which um, um, U.S. Muslims are often stigmatized as being foreign uh, Muslim terrorists. Um, but anyway, so it made me think, can we talk about Black African immigrant uh, Muslim communities and domestic violence? Anyway, so just a conversation about, about how those dynamics play out as you encountered those groups and as we talk about what engaged feminist uh, scholarship looks like. Her narrative accounts and analysis invite me to be accountable. Her examples of the insensitivity of Christians who reinforce their U.S. dominance in multi-faith uh, settings. Um, I felt ashamed to be a Christian as I read some of those examples, though also quite aware of, of how, the, how those kinds of uh, dynamics play out. But I recognized my own culpability. I felt invited to recognize my own culpability, for example, in the ways in which I have participated in and failed to correct African-American Christian discussions of how local communities should address the needs of victim survivors as if all Black communities were exclusively comprised of Christians um, and Black churches. Uh, and how I have failed to sort of to um, intervene in those moments of Christian supremacy being expressed. So this text is bold, it is methodologically innovative and ideal for this conversation about engaged feminist uh, scholarship. And I look forward to having more conversation. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for that. And we'll definitely pick up those um, conversations in the the discussion between the panelists, as well as the question and answer. Um, I would now invite Sadia Yacoub to give her comments. I'd like to begin by uh, thanking Dr. Wheeler for inviting me uh, to speak on this panel and to also uh, just say what an honor and privilege it is uh, for me to engage with Dr. Hammer's work. Uh, she's my mentor and advisor. I've known her for uh, you know, uh, well over a decade. So really, it is such an incredible honor and privilege for me uh, to have this opportunity. I wanted to also, so when I started reading uh, Dr. Hammer's book, uh, it reminded me uh, of um, why I decided to come into the academy. And for me, it was very much, uh, you know, I was a, a, a student activist in college, 9-11 uh, happened in my junior year and I was at a college in DC and so it was just you know we were just so many of us were propelled into anti-war uh, activism and then that became my first job out of college um, and I remember at some point uh, feeling the sense that um, everything that that you know that I was involved in organizing felt like immediate urgent work and uh, and that part of what we needed to do was to to imagine what another world might look like. Um, and, and, and that is kind of what propelled me into uh, thinking about the academy as potentially a space where I might have to think about what another world might look like, a world which was not defined by hierarchy and violence. And of course, then I came into the academy and the rest is a, you know, is a sad, tragic story. Um, <clears throat> because I realized very quickly that uh, the ethos in the academy is that somehow all of our political uh, and ethical commitments are supposed to be left at the door. And in fact, um, you know, I had many engagements as a graduate student uh, with different people who warned me of precisely that because I was sounding like I was uh, either too committed or too invested. Uh, and so uh, in a way, uh, reading Dr. Hammer's book for me was um, 
you know, revive for me the hope in the possibility that we can imagine a different way of being a scholar than the ways that uh, we often train people to be. Um, I wanted to, to bring up a couple of things uh, um, that uh, I hope we can have a, a broader conversation about and things that I think the book is really urging us uh, to have a conversation about. And I wanted to begin with two things. One was uh, Dr. Hammer's uh, definition of what she means by engaged scholar or scholarship. Uh, and the other is uh, the, the argument that she makes for responsible critique. So uh, Dr. Hammer in the book defines uh, being an engaged scholar as someone who sees the purpose of my scholarship as inherently political and intended to produce change in society. And then in describing what constitutes responsible critique, and she's uh, working with Rochelle Terman's uh, idea of this, um, she quotes uh, Terman as saying, a responsible critique is one that opens the widest analytical space in which a double critique can take place qualifies the most voices and allows for the greatest creativity in producing new political imaginaries. So for me, there are two things that I get from uh, uh, Dr. Hammer's call towards engaged scholarship and responsible critique. One is that we as scholars are responsible to the world in which we speak as scholars. And second is that the scholarship that we do is and should be a part of the world. So deconstructing this idea that somehow the academy sits outside of the world and that we shouldn't that at times when scholars are called to be responsible for the life that their scholarship takes on the response is to say well i'm just i'm just you know saying what i'm saying um it, it you know it, it, it i'm not really speaking to these communities to kind you know to really uh think about the ethical responsibility on us as scholars and for me what this uh you know reading uh dr hammer's book this means is that we need to reflect on our own positions as scholars uh, and we need to think about what work our scholarly positions and critiques do uh, in the community. So taking the example that uh, Dr. Hammer gives of the Islam versus culture arguments that are made by advocates uh, in these uh, uh, Muslim communities and, uh, and organizations, in the academy, there is very much this tendency to break down and to deconstruct the idea that there is some uh, um, a, a reified thing called Islam, which can be distinguished from culture, right? Uh, but what Dr. Hammer, you know, reflects on uh, in the book is that that distinction was doing very particular and very important work in these communities. So what does it mean for us as scholars then to insist on a particular kind of deconstructive mode or a particular uh, uh, analytical argument uh, when in communities, that argument might actually cause harm or it might prevent people from being able to prevent harm right it would it would cause a, a disruption in people's ability to use that as a strategic tool to prevent harm uh, which for me then opens up the space for us as uh, as fields and disciplines but also as individual scholars to then reflect on our own normative commitments because i think part of what uh, Dr. Hammer's book really got me thinking about is the fact that it's not that some of us have normative commitments. It's that a, you know every scholar has a, a certain level of normative commitments that brings them to their scholarly analysis. Some of us name it and others don't. Um, and so what then would it mean to do scholarship where the, the you know, in, in, in a scholarly world where scholars have to contend with and name what their commitments are, uh, and then reflect on 
what it is that brings us to the analytical arguments that we're making, right? In, in a way, uh, I would say going back to the Islam versus culture distinction, there is, uh, there is some kind of work in our, in our scholarly conversations in the, in the discipline that the insistence on deconstructing any distinction between Islam versus culture does, rather than seeing it as an analytical uh, argument that somehow is not doing its own kind of political work, let's recognize uh, that it is actually doing that and then recognize that uh, it, that analytical um, uh, argument is not valuable in every space, right? It might be valuable in a particular space, but not everywhere. The other thing that struck me also about <clears throat> Dr. Hammer's book um, was how many different communities we met uh, in the book. There is this, you know, very obviously the, the mosque-based Muslim communities uh, and, the, uh, and the organizations that are doing um, work around DV awareness or uh, providing direct services. Um, but we also hear from Dr. Hammer about the exclusions in that, uh, in the community, the erasure of African-American Muslims in a lot of these, uh, of these spaces. So there are communities that are missing uh, or being excluded from, uh, from these communities that she's talking about. But then there are other communities. There's the mainstream DV community. There is the interfaith uh, community. So there's so many different communities that we meet uh, throughout the book, which then raises for me this question as to if we are to think about engaged scholarship as us being in conversation with uh, a community or different communities, then we also have to think about the fact that not all communities uh, would be uh, engaged with or evaluated in the same ways, right? That just, that, that at some level, uh, part of that scholarly work is also being able to um, engage with those communities uh, in critique. And I'd love to talk um, more about this. Um, so for me, as uh, a, a Muslim feminist working on Islamic law, Dr. Hammer's book really raised for me this question of how you know, would I be responsible to the different communities that I emerge from, uh, am located in, and want to uh, be in conversation with in terms of the work that I do, that part of what Muslim feminists have done in the academy uh, is offer critique of the Islamic intellectual tradition, including uh, Islamic law. But for communities that uh, see this intellectual tradition as part of their own histories that they want to hold on to in the face of increasing anti-Muslim hostility uh, and American imperialism, what would be the responsible mode for me to engage? Uh, what would responsible scholarship look like is the question that that raises uh, for me. Uh, and then I'll just end by saying that I hope, I really hope that Dr. Hammer's uh, book and call for engaged scholarship and responsible critique will open up conversations in our field to have these, um, to have conversations about this uh, distinction that we make between academia and the world, as well as urge scholars to consider how we are situated uh, in and responsible uh, to the world and that the work that we do uh, does and should speak to uh, uh, and should be emerging from and be in conversation uh, with communities. Thank you. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and next we'll have uh, Kayla Renee Wheeler. So I just wanted to thank the Women and Religion Unit for sponsoring this and um, inviting me to submit the proposal for Dr. Hammer's book. Um, she's one of my mentors and introduced me to Islamic studies at AAR. So this is coming full circle for me. 
So in my mind, Peaceful Families is a groundbreaking text, and I don't use that word lightly. She's certainly building off the work of other um, feminist scholars, um, Muslim feminist scholars, Muslim women who center Muslim women, including Amina Wadud, Saya Sheikh, and Lori Silvers. Her work makes important contributions to our understanding of anti-Muslim hostility and its gender nature, the role that racialization of Islam plays in erasing Black Muslims, and the limits of centering religious texts when discussing Muslims' everyday lived experiences and their activism. So in reading Yuliana's book as a model for engaged feminist scholarship, it brings up three guiding questions for us to ask ourselves when we are in the field or in the archive, as well as when we're writing. So the first question is, what is our role as feminist, womanist, or meharista scholars when engaging in research? And this is more than a question of positionality. It's a question about who we show up as. Are we witnesses, participants, critics, interveners? As a Muslim feminist engaged scholar, Dr. Hammer is committed to critique and a movement for change drawing from the late Saba Mahmoud's work. She shows us that it's possible to be a witness, a participant, an activist, a critic, and an intervener, but I imagine that it comes at a great toll to her emotional well-being, especially when studying something as sensitive um, and having such high stakes. So I appreciate the reflexivity throughout the book. Um, Dr. Hammer writes of her discomfort when hearing imams, many of whom have an incomplete understanding of what constitutes domestic violence, and the structures that make it even possible. They joke about um, women nagging their husbands, being abusive and other kind of dis dismissive things. She also highlights the tension she experienced hearing and having to detail how some Muslims embrace the notion of protective patriarchy, which reifies ideal family and community gender hierarchies as a way to gain support for anti-domestic violence work. This investment in patriarchy, she points out, can en enable harmful practices and does not take into account the diverse intimate and marital relationships that Muslims practice with, um, within the United States and beyond. For Hammer, these are not theoretical questions. These are lives at stake and they're lives of members of her own community, Ba'umma. For her work, this is personal, which is why it is important for her to express her concerns and highlight alternative perspectives, which she does in chapter eight. As someone who studies people and organizations that I do not always agree with, I found this aspect of her work very instructive. So the second question I think we should ask ourselves when doing this research is who do we write for or to? And for me, this book was written by a white Muslim woman to the Muslim community, fully aware of the white Christian gaze. What I appreciated most about Peaceful Families is how accessible it is while retaining its intellectual rigor. This is a work that I can see being assigned in my classrooms. I'm gonna assign it next semester actually. Um, I could see it being an auntie's reading club list as well as on an activist resource guide. So one thing that really surprised me was the lack of statistics um, in the book. When I teach about state-sanctioned anti-Black violence, I find that using statistics is an effective way to grab my students' attention and let them see how serious anti-Black violence is. However, in turning individual stories into numbers, we risk dehumanizing victims and survivors. And for me, this book is ultimately a project of humanization. 
Hammer is interested in telling the stories of real people by treating them as people instead of headlines. And this comes out most clearly in chapter two when she describes Asya Zubair's murder at the hands of her husband. She doesn't go into detail about her death, refusing to contribute to her dehumanization or many US Americans' obsession with trauma porn. So she talks about Muslims and to Muslims, keeping in mind her academic audience without making it seem like she's a cultural tour guide. And so I think this kind of work is really important, but I wonder what can senior scholars do to make this kind of engaged scholarship less risky, especially career-wise for junior scholars, graduate students, and contingent faculty. So in the chapter one, Dr. Hammer talks about um, engaged scholarship, activist scholarship is often not treated as real scholarship. So how can we encourage younger scholars and scholars who are very marginalized, who I often think the more marginalized you are, the more interesting and innovative your work is, how can we not only encourage it, but make that an expectation for all scholars? And finally, um, my final question is, how might our own positionality affect how our interlocutors relate to us, as well as what critiques we're willing to make? Dr. Hammer makes her identity very clear at the beginning of the book. She is a white Muslim woman convert. She does not wear a hijab. She is a professor, although she left out at a very elite university, and she is a Muslim feminist. At the end of chapter four, she explains how disclosing her feminist commitments or being found out through a quick Google search of her work might have jeopardized her access to Muslim communities and organizations. She also brings up in her discussion of imams and gender authority in chapter five, how trust can affect what an interlocutor is willing to reveal. And I think a lot of that trust is built based on our own identities and what we're willing to reveal. The other side of the positionality question for me is how might our identities shape what we are comfortable with critiquing? In chapter one, she notes the invisibility of race and community conversations and activism around ending domestic violence, um, as well as a lack of acknowledgement of racism within Muslim communities. And for me, I think this ignoring of race, especially blackness, is a result of several things. Um, the notion that Islam is post-race and that um, racism is an American thing, so getting into that religion versus cultural debate that I find very common amongst Muslims. Another possible um, reason for this is the embrace of the model minority myth among some Muslims, especially Arabs and South Asians, viewing um, racism as not being real because there are some non-Black people who are successful. And finally, I think this could be a result of what I call hegemonic Islam, the privileging of Arab and South Asian Muslims as the most authentic Muslims. So we don't worry about what Black people are doing anyway because they're not real Muslims. So Dr. Hammer brings up um, the consequences of erasing Black Muslims from domestic violence conversations among Muslims in chapter two, but I didn't see much evidence that she challenged her interlocutors on the issue and pushed them. Why are you not talking about race? Do you not see yourself as a person of color? Perhaps some of this um, negative media attention has to do with not only being a religious minority, but also a racial or ethnic minority. So in fact, despite her stating that race is made invisible, by many advocates, she does little to center it in her own analysis. So I wonder how her own positionality as a white woman, who likely has a very different experience with race and racialization than even white hijabis, 
made her feel uncomfortable pushing people of color who are already dealing with white supremacy and the white gaze and pushing them to think more critically about race. How am I leaning into that discomfort and leaning more thoroughly into Black feminist scholarship, like from Jennifer Nash or Bell Hooks, Andrea Ritchie or Kimberly Crenshaw? Might your approach change? And how might this be a different book? So thank you so much. And I'll turn it back over to Brittany. Great, thank you so much for those um, insightful comments, Kayla. Um, so finally, we're gonna end with some final reflections um, from Dr. Hummer, and then we will have a group discussion before opening up for questions. So first of all, thank you all, um, Tracy, Sadia, and Kayla for um, reading this carefully, for engaging in this way, and for the challenges. I think my initial impulse is to address the concern um, that I think is the biggest because it came up both in, in Dr. West and Dr. Wheeler's um, remarks. At the same time, I also feel like my impulse to do that is a little defensive. And so I wanna spend a second thinking about how to perhaps do that. And so to give myself that minute, I want to pick up on something that I heard in both um, Dr. Yakub and Dr. Wheeler's um, remarks that has to do with the broader theme of engaged scholarship and who decides whether that is scholarship. And um, I think Dr. Wheeler named very aptly something um, that I perhaps briefly talk about in the book in some place, which is that I couldn't have written this book as my first book as an academic. And um, I have, in fact, navigated the, the, the sort of complications of both being a feminist scholar and being in a self-identified Muslim scholar, um, mostly through not telling anyone that I'm a Muslim scholar. I never could keep my mouth shut about being a feminist. Um, but I have experienced this being in the closet and being concerned, including something that I didn't realize until much later, when someone came up to me at a conference and said, um, I have a question for you. Are you Muslim by any chance? And, and I was really sort of thrown off by the question. And the person said, well, you know, you write in such a balanced way that it's almost objective. And as a feminist scholar, I was terrified that the notion of sounding objective is, is terrifying to me. So, so this, this conversation about risk um, and how we can work, we as in we more senior scholars can work on, on continuously making this a topic of conversation. And I, I, one of the things that I, that I um, do and that I try to do very intentionally is mentoring um, around those questions. I see this as a process where we're not going to be able to change the academy overnight or in the next two years. However, I think it is worth engaging in mentoring types of activities and um, both um, Dr. Yakub and Dr. Wheeler um, were and are 
brilliant scholars in their own right. Um, I used a position that I already had to open up some doors. That's one kind of mentoring. The other kind, I think, is the kind that I also engage in with my own student, which is to openly talk about risks and navigating those kinds of risks. Right. So because um, trying to, to change the academy from a position of risk um, can really feel like walking against the same brick wall over and over again. And so and I think so I think there's a sort of strategic um, engagement with the academy that is that is both critical and still working within its boundaries that I would love to talk more about. OK, I think I have created that buffer. So the question of race and racism, and I think um, Dr. Weston, Dr. Wheeler bring this together in a way that is a very astute way of saying you don't really talk about race. And I have three things. One is that um, I decided relatively recently in thinking about whether I'm now done working on domestic violence. Um, so scholars sort of engage in projects and then once the book is done, there's this question of what am I gonna do next? Am I gonna work more on this? What am I gonna do? One of the things that I am planning to do is to write something specifically about this aspect of race and racism and how that plays out in the materials. And I think I have two sort of explanations and um, for, for, the, for the absence, for the glaring absence. Um, I, yeah, yes, it is in the introduction. And um, no, I did not spend enough time thinking about it beyond that. So one of, one of the, the, the issues is something that has become sort of much, much more apparent over the past year which is that my position as a white Muslim woman um, puts me in a complicated spot in addressing or at least pointing out anti-Black racism because um, sort of structures of racism are layered in, in, in specific ways, especially around Muslim communities. And I'm in a very complicated position to tell um, Arab and South Asian um, Muslims that they are um, engaging in anti-Black racism. And I have had experiences that, that, that have illustrated this difficulty to me. And I will admit openly, and this, is, this feels very vulnerable to me, that I'm not quite sure how to address that. So, so, so as a scholar, I'm struggling with um, what my purpose, so to speak, um, there could be and what an angle could be that addresses those questions as questions. The other part, um, and there um, Dr. Wheeler has actually been an inspiration to me over the um, many years now that we've known each other, is that I didn't really very seriously start reading Black feminist scholarship until I was well into writing the book. And so, um, this is not an excuse at all, um, but it is true that the work that I'm currently doing um, is a really dramatic reframing of my own thinking based on the work of Black feminist and womanist scholars. And, and so there is every book 
when you're done with it feels like you should have written it differently. And, um, and so I, I, I see it um, and I'm, I'm very glad that um, Dr. West um, experienced the invitation. I see it as an invitation. And so I think instead of sort of defending what I didn't do or why I didn't do certain things in the book, um, I see it as an open project in the sense that it has taught me quite a few things including some of my own blind spots and some of the things that, yes, I am uncomfortable with um, talking about. And I will add that as a white European woman who um, arrived in the United States um, sort of for good um, in her early 30s, it has also taken me quite a long time to understand better what American racist structures look like and how they function. So reading race, when I first arrived in the United States, was very difficult for me. It's not that Germans are not racist or there's no racism, but the structures are different. And so I see this as a learning project. And I will say, and then I will end, that I struggle with the pressure that I experience, at least, and that I see in some people's scholarship to somehow, at certain points or certain junctures, choose between gender and race and decide which one is more important. And yes, there is intersectional um, analysis, but that's not uncomplicated. And even in intersectional scholarship, I think there is a tendency to um, make choices about um, emphasizing one of the three um, oppressive hierarchies in, in some way in order to provide an analytical framing. And so this is actually a conversation that I would love to have about how that might play out um, in different people's work also related to positionality. Okay, I'll stop there. Wonderful. Um, so we now have about 15, 20 minutes for the panelists to talk amongst themselves. Um, part of this is it's, you know, loosely supposed to be a guided discussion, but I don't really want also like in terms of thinking about feminist scholarship, I think it should be much more collaborative. I do want to begin though by posing a question, um, which I think picks up on a lot of the things that have just been said, but I've been thinking about what is the role that discomfort and vulnerability play in engaged feminist scholarship? Um, and maybe like affect more generally, but really thinking about discomfort and vulnerability and how that features in all of your work and how it's a both a, you know, it's an obstacle, but also a sort of a motivation and some of what drives the scholarship itself. Well, I'll say, I think if I'm being completely honest, I'm probably not as vulnerable in my work as I could be. And that's usually, I'm in a whole bunch of writing groups. I'm working on my book right now. And that's always the one thing that they talk about. Like, we love you sharing your personal experiences, but we don't really get who you are as a person. Like, I can give you the list at the beginning of my intro, Black Muslim woman, non-hijabi, all these things. But for me, it's like, I feel like the ability to be vulnerable and express your discomfort um, on paper for the world to see is kind of a privilege 
um, that I don't know if I necessarily have right now. So I'm a first year faculty member. So I still haven't even gone through my first review yet. Um, and that kind of work is not necessarily respected um, because it's not objective. Nothing I can do, I'm, I'm incapable of being objective. I study my own community, um, but there's that push for you to do it um, or like be super, super vulnerable, give your whole life story. And I don't want, I don't have any tra traumatic things around fashion to share. Like I don't have like this long like hijab narrative. I'm kind of just a vain person and I like my hair, um, but I do cover sometimes and it's simple like that. But I think when a lot of expectations around vulnerability and discomfort, we expect you to be super dramatic and I just don't have enough drama. But I think that's a function of patriarchy. Yeah, I guess, um sort of um, following from what Dr. Wheeler is saying, I, I feel like, so I, I, you know, am sort of in field of religious studies slash Islamic studies. It's complicated how those two <laughs> fields relate to one another. Um, and I work on Islamic law, pre-modern sort of like, you know, mostly eighth through like 13th century kind of stuff. Um, and, and I feel similarly, you know, that it seems to me that there are disciplines that uh, either value or um, really want to see in a performative kind of a way in, in, in some instances, uh, a expression of a scholar's vulnerability. And then there are fields that are absolutely not open to any um, display of the scholar thinking through and trying to struggle with the materials that they're working with. And so I feel for me personally in the kind of um, broader sort of field and subfield uh, that I'm in, uh, there really is very little space to think about or, or to express my own kind of um, vulnerabilities about the work that I do, me questioning uh, you know, the, the, the uh, analysis that I'm doing. And some of it might also be a pre-tenure sort of, uh, you know, situation where perhaps I might feel more comfortable pushing those boundaries if I did not feel that, you know, my livelihood depends on uh, the assessment of senior scholars in the field. I mean, I think there's, there's a way in which uh, the, the academy and the way that it's set up uh, doesn't really allow for younger scholars to be able to do the work that they might want to do until they get to a certain, you know, kind of position. And so for me, the, you know, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that I feel, uh, vulnerability that I feel about the work that I do and that I constantly sort of question myself um, and, and questions about my ethical responsibility to the text that I read, the people who wrote them, you know, all of that kind of stuff that I feel like is very hard to express, at least in the subfield that I'm in. Yeah, I, this question is hard for me because I have so much to say about it. So <laughs> I just, I'm trying to get, okay, what are the three most important things I want to say? Um, one is just, I feel like Dr. Hummer just displayed vulnerability. So, so if that question that you ask, in fact, goes back to just the ways in which she just talked about race and racism and and in, in, in one sense, vulnerability by one talking about process. So literally showing us the way I am going to answer this question 
is to reflect on what kinds of defensiveness comes up for me, right? So, so literally walking us through process, what her process is about thinking about answering the question. So that's vulnerability. Then vulnerability in, in, in including um, that I don't know. So, so for scholars to include in any kind of answer and particularly in any kind of academic setting, I don't know. Um, there's things I don't know. Um, that, that's vulnerability. Um, and, then, and then I also think, um, just to talk about a sense of growing, um, is, also, uh, is also vulnerable. But at the same time, I want to be careful because that's the reason I, I said certainty. I want, I, I think this work is inherently, has a, a, a claim that I think feminist work for me, black feminist work has a claim on being certain about the harm of patriarchy. And so, so what I just described as vulnerability, right? What I was just using was at the same time this like bold, I am going to do feminist method in how I answer a question here, right? And, and, to, to, and to model it um, with this, and, 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 there's, and there is a way in which so often um, that we don't, we don't recognize the boldness. Um, some of us don't recognize the boldness. Because you get, because your mind is so inter the pa this, the kind of hetero patriarchal norms are in your head, and you didn't, and you're stuck with those constraints. And then the, just working on issues of violence, intimate violence, domestic violence, sexual assault—that's all you're working on is vulnerability, right? So, so, so the, so that that project is in itself a project because it's, it's work that I also do is a project of what does it mean to produce knowledge, the heart of which is about trauma and destruction of mind, body, spirit of the people who are victimized by the violence. And one of the choices this text makes is, as Dr. Wheeler pointed out, but I wanna underscore it, is this is about the activist movement work, right? That service providers, right? So it, it actually does not keep the lens on the experience of the trauma. Of course it assumes that that trauma and vulnerability is at the heart, but the process that it allows us to engage, which is coming back to what I was trying to emphasize, is what is a communal transformation look like? Because most approaches to violence, domestic violence especially, are about individual healing, right? So when we talk about responses, it's about some individual process. And so I just want to emphasize that there is a way in which we want to claim both the claiming of vulnerability when, you, when you're talking about domestic violence, sexual assault, hate crimes against LGBTQIA folks, right? All kinds of gendered violence. Of course, of course, you're, you're trying to say, this is knowledge, what, what has occurred, the way it has occurred, but also you wanna claim, and then there's our movements addressing it. 
And that's knowledge. Um, and, and that knowledge and the method and also the knowledge of really ending it has to take on heteropatriarchal um, kinds of understandings. Um, so I wanna at least add those pieces. I'll add one thing that um, is in some ways about discomfort and vulnerability, um, which I don't think we've um, addressed quite yet, except um, Dr. West talked about um, a sort of Christian-centric lens, at least in DV work that comes out in, in, in the later parts of the book, which is that I also, like many Muslim feminists, struggle with what feminism is, what it is for me, what it means to identify as a feminist. And I was a feminist before I was a Muslim. And so I come with a very particular, also uh, Eurocentric um, feminist baggage. And, 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 I, and I think thinking about what it means to be a feminist, who do I who do I connect with, who do I identify with, how do I deal with the fissures and the tensions and the dismissal, um, both more generally of religious feminists, but also specifically of Muslim feminists, even in religious feminist circles, all of these are layers of complication, layers of complexity. Of course, um, there are um, very, very, very colonial forms of feminism um, that have been utilized um, in, in the European, Euro-American colonial project um, that affect Muslims in specific ways. So, so that, um, it seems to be, um, needs to at least be put in question. And then I want to add, and that sort of circles back around to the vulnerability, especially of, of junior scholars, that feminist scholarship, at least in religious studies, is not accepted per se as scholarship. We're not in a place in the field of religious studies where feminist approaches are embraced as a particular methodological choice alongside other choices. In fact, the, the perpetual dismissal that I, I see in the ways in which um, feminist scholars um, hang out, meet, and do things in very specific units, in program units specifically around feminist scholarship, women and religion is the oldest ones. There are, I think, two other ones that have the word, that actually have the word feminist in the title of the unit. So, so I want to point out that part of the work that we're doing here is not taking for granted the feminist piece, right? We're talking about the engaged part. That's sort of what we've been focusing on. But I think the feminist part is in question, at least outside of the circles um, that we're currently having this conversation in. Yeah, I think that that is very, and even being relatively young as a graduate student to the field, very like still able to discern. Um, and it's always been very interesting. I wonder, so we have about seven minutes or so before we want to open it up for questions. Um, I think this, this question of what the relationship between intersectional scholarship or anti-racism anti and feminist engagement is really important. Um, so I would like to pose that. However, I also wanted to ask if any of the panelists had questions for each other that they would like to bring up at this time. 
Yeah, so I guess for me, for Dr. West and Dr. Hammer, since you all are more senior, um, what can senior scholars do to make this scholarship actually value? There are so many junior faculty members and grad students and independent scholars doing this work, um, but they usually don't get invited to do meet the author kind of things. And they often don't get jobs. And you yourself said, Dr. Hammer, that like this could not have been your first book. So what can senior scholars actually do to help begin to change the field? Um, because you all just have more institutional power than we do. Here, I'm hoping that Dr. West is gonna go first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my gray hair, I guess, won't let me hide from being a senior scholar. So I, I was gonna say, you know, so yeah, uh, I guess I definitely am there. Um, so, I mean, there, there are ways in which I have some resistance uh, to a framework that um, that 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 somehow has a sense that we that academia, a tradition, the academia can be something other than what it, what it is. So, so there, there's a way in which this is a space that ha that's just so embedded and structurally, um, you know, so deeply sexist and heteropatriarchal. And so there's ways in which we can resist and create resistance. We create resistance through certain kinds of very specific scholarly work. The work that we're putting out there, hopefully is an invitation uh, to, um, to, to create, to keep a conversation going and alive that is directly related to movements. There's very specific mentoring, which, um, several of us do in lots of different ways. So those are specific practices. But I think, yeah, I think that there's also this work of being in solidarity with one another in what it means to, to, to recognize that this is about struggle and creating a space of alternative values. Like, I don't think the AAR is, is we, can, we can create an AAR that is something um, that is other than a deeply, deeply embedded um, sort of imperialist, Euro-American, European-driven project of traditional and classical notions of scholarship. But I do think we can create spaces and conversations where um, scholars who I want to say junior, not necessarily younger, because there are people of a range of ages who's, who go back to school, who are part of um, higher education and get PhDs, but who 
who encounter a sense of, of un, various forms of unwelcome, uh, given the degrees of marginality um, that they might have I, related to gender identity, I, I related to sexuality, related to disability, um, related to a range of other identities. So how do we keep creating those spaces of, of welcome for the kind of And at the same time, um, recognize that my right. continued so presence in it that's, um, both legitimates that, but has also enabled me to a limited degree, but at least a little bit, to subvert some of these structures. And I want to pick up on this idea of spaces and on the idea of solidarity. Um, so I think of Fred Milton's under comments and the ways in which the academy, including the AAR, may not want for us to create those spaces and have those conversations, um, but we're doing it anyways. And so, um, I, and I think the other piece is what I mentioned earlier, which is the, the, the sort of tension between being critical of academia and um, navigating its confines while insisting on solidarity, on certain types of values and certain types of projects. And I love, um, Tracy, that you feel like the book communicates a kind of certainty about some things. And, and, and I, I agree that I have that, but I will also say that that certainty is hard earned because I have to build it every day. I have to remind myself why pushing certain types of conversations and making certain types of arguments isn't about me and it's not about being theoretically savvy or being successful at a big institution. It's, it's about pushing certain types of ideas um, and, and the, the vulnerability that comes from critiquing patriarchal Muslim contexts and spaces um, and who one gets attacked by and how sometimes attacks come from different sides and from all sides at the same time. Um, Dr. Yakub and I have those conversations frequently. Um, is is I think is I think important. So I, I do know on a certain level why I'm doing this work. Um, and I'm gonna refrain from making it a theological point, even though I'm really, really wanting to. Um, but but that, that certainty needs to be built. And I find that trying to rebuild that and redefine it and maintain it every day works much, much better in community than it does individually. And so I think the point of networks and community building and spaces of solidarity is, is sort of my takeaway from it. We're not gonna change the academy as we know it, but I think there are things that we can do to resist to resist it and to resist it together um, and to prevent it from destroying us, which is an actual real thing that happens to especially um, um, female identified academics, not infrequently. So perhaps um, this is actually, there's a question in the chat that is, I think, a nice pivot from this, dis um, this discussion. So now we'll switch over to audience questions. Um, I encourage everyone also to put their questions in the chat. I believe we're going to try to do something where we bring you into the Zoom so we can see everyone and you can turn your videos on if you feel comfortable with that. However, um, there is no, no pressure to do so, of course. 
Um, but the first question is from Alejandro, um, and he is asking, I wonder, so he's asking, um, I wonder about what happens when feminist engaged scholarship becomes normalized, right? So we're talking about these spaces um, and what happens when the space becomes normalized. Um, once a university can define it, put it in a department, market it, does it lose something? So I think what ends up happening, honestly, is um, once the academy gets its claws on it, it becomes co-opted and often whitewashed. So since June, I've seen so many scholars who like probably don't even know a black person in their real lives, um, all of a sudden are experts in critical race theory and intersectionality and know what identity politics is. But if you ask them a single question about it, they can't tell you who Polly Murray is. They don't know who Barbara Smith is. And they don't actually engage with black scholars um, or black people on the ground. So I think we, the academy, they remove these things from the community. So we have to understand who actually came up with intersectionality and who she was inspired by. So Kimberly Crenshaw is a lawyer. If you read her early works where she's talking about intersectionality and introducing it, she's talking about um, anti-discrimination court cases and how Black women were not able to be the faces for class action lawsuits when it was about race or gender. So I think we, we theorize it a lot um, and take it out of the community and um, lose the idea that this is actually a praxis. Like this has, these are things that people use in their everyday lives and they started in the community. Academics just gave them fancy names. I just wanna add this, what is also important to remember that among people who identify as, as feminist, womanist, mujerista, um, decolonial, decolonial uh, liberationist theorists that work on gender violence is often not considered serious intellectual work. And so, um, so even when one is among um, the, one's colleagues is in, in the sense of, of having very politicized understandings of, of your work, um, that they're, they're, the, the idea, this idea in as much as engaged, and I was trying to make engaged have a range of meanings, because I think it does have a range of meanings, methodological meanings that are not, not just about encounter and interview, but also about certain kinds of commitments, um, but it, in one's peers that I, I've been told um, often and so at, the, at the AAR, that, are you still working on that passe um, issue of violence against women? Um, and so, so that there's a way in which um, I can't, I can't even imagine that this topic would become center um, because the nature of it um, is one that is that is dismissed as having theoretical and conceptual importance. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to Women in Religion for allowing us to talk about this book in the context of us thinking about scholarship broadly. Yeah, I, uh, to that question, and I'm not going to sort of directly answer that question, but just for me, like one of the things is that, you know, what we talk about or the, you know, what the question is talking about in terms of normalizing 
uh, feminist or engaged scholarship, the reality is that the academy incentivizes a certain kind of normalization, right, of your discipline or disciplinary conversations because so much uh, of that is tied to funding, right? Is your department, uh, is your discipline going to be funded by the university? Is about student interest in terms of enrollment? Is about, you know, how much your publication gets picked up? So in a way, we're incentivized to actually uh, normalize, right? Or to um, uh, make popular the, the you know, the, the work that we're doing, which I think in, in a lot of ways is, uh, what happens to grad students coming in, right? The, the, the kind of projects that they pick up are largely also about your, uh, um, your marketability once you finish your PhD, right? So you want to pick a project that people will be interested in as opposed to something that's seen as not interesting or like, you know, just very peripheral, uh, which for me then raises this question of, um, you know, why do we center the academy in the work that we do? Right. Why can we not envision creating alternative spaces and coming back to um, Dr. Hammer's book and, and, you know, in the American Muslim community, I, I'm amazed at how much the American Muslim community has really mastered the ability to take educational work and scholarship uh, outside of the academy, right, and, and build their own kinds of educational spaces. I mean, the number of Muslim seminaries that are now offering bachelor's degrees and master's, I mean, they call them all of these things, right, uh, that, that you can do um, a program there and get a bachelor's degree. It's not accredited, it's not going to be recognized, right, uh, but the fact is that they've created alternative educational spaces, and for me, that then, you know, raises this question of what prevents us from doing it, and especially now, the moment that we're in, uh, you know, with the pandemic in the next decade, we're going to see the financial, um, you know, the effects of the kind of financial collapse that is going to happen, which means that those of us that are already seen as marginal and peripheral are going to, uh, you know, be ushered out of the academy. So we really do need to think about how do we create alternative spaces to have that conversation and to have the conversations that we're having, rather than doing what the academy wants us to do, which is to try and normalize your work as much as possible by making it appealing to more and more people, which means that you have to soften your radical critique, because that's how people, you know, like what Dr. Wheeler is saying, that's, there's a certain kind of performative wokeness that wants to pick up a certain kind of um, language, but doesn't actually want to be in conversation with those communities or actually do that work, right? They're not actually interested in the De, uh, deconstructing those structures or destroying those structures. It's just a certain way of talking. So for me, that's the question. How do we envision other spaces for having these conversations in the academy? I'll, I'll add um, two things. One that is that um, I see my own work as focused on religious studies. Um, there are other disciplines like women and gender studies, and I know that's not without problems and challenges like um, uh, African American and Africana studies. Um, those I see as disciplines where um, something that Sadia said earlier in her remarks, which is to be responsible to the world, is actually built into them. That's also the reason why those are always the first on the chopping block when something goes badly in the capitalist academy, right? Like there are reasons for that. But I, I see my own 
responsibility as making some kind of space in religious studies specifically, right? Like the academy as a whole, I'm not gonna change religious studies more specifically, the AAR that I have been involved in in various capacities for many, many years. Those are places where I feel like there are things that we can push. I will also say that um, my university at least uses the word, the, the term engaged scholarship to mean something entirely different from what we're talking about here. Um, Engaged scholarship is giving talks at the public library and um, giving lectures, especially about Muslim women, great topic to um, people in retirement homes. And the kinds of things that they have in mind have nothing to do with my notion of engaged scholarship. So even the term itself, at least in this institution, has already been co-opted and, and defanged in that way. Um, so I, I wanna point out that, that that's also happening. All right, so we have, I believe, four minutes left and um, I think that they will shut us down. <laughs> so there's no, there's no time for um, lingering afterwards, but we do have one question um, if we would like to quickly respond to that. Um, so Shauna is asking, um, I'd love to hear everyone respond about what activist scholarship looks like for when you're doing it within communities. Um, so like, I think that the, what you're literally doing within the community itself um, and how does it look like on the ground? So if we're thinking about activist scholarship, whether it's moments of challenging racism or patri patriarchy, what does that look like for you in the field? Um, so if anyone would like to respond very briefly, feel free to do so. So I just want to say that we have a 15 minute buffer. Oh, amazing. Thank you. And then they, then they will cut us off. Like, okay. for <laughs> um, excellent. So we have much more time to respond. Awesome. Well, I'll say like for me, I actually am very uncomfortable with calling myself an activist scholar. Um, like a lot of my work. So I created the Black Islam syllabus. And so a lot of people like claim that that's activist work. Um, but I think it's actually disrespectful to actual activists to call myself an activist. Like I write about things, I like, I write about oppression, but I also have a tenure track job. Um, and most of the activism I do is like donating or like trying to teach people like X, Y, and Z outside of the classroom. But for me, like activism is a full time like job if you want to use that word and commitment. And I don't think that I can fully commit to that and be a professor. That doesn't mean that I don't work in my like daily struggles to like challenge every kind of ism. Um, but I think, I, I don't know, I feel like sometimes like academics, no offense to us, like I think our heads are too big. Like I don't, there are some, there are some scholars that are activist scholars, but I don't think there's as many as we think there are. Like for me, an activist scholar is like Angela Davis keeping it real, how many of us are on that level? Like maybe 0.01%. Um, so for me, I try to frame it like, how can I be less trash of a human being? Um, and how can I center marginalized people and whatever I do? So for me, that means like, when I'm talking to the aunties and usually like what it is, is like, it's more homophobia or fat phobia. Like I went to a fashion show and they were all hating on Lizzo because um, she was like twerking with no clothes on like and they're all Nikabi's this was Philadelphia so I had to be like oh you know like that's how 
white people talk about all black people or like you know that's kind of like slave mentality like she's not muslim but like muslims do different things so like why don't we just not do that so i think there's a way that we can challenge people but for me that's not activism that's just like not being trash i'm wondering if it's possible to make a connection um um between um dr shippey's question and um um something that uh, came up earlier, which is uh, uh, something Dr. Wheeler said, uh, which is this question of how do we write about people we don't agree with? Uh, I had an experience earlier in my career where um, Carolyn Rouse, um, whose scholarship at Princeton I greatly admire, um, basically said, it's very difficult as an anthropologist, she is one and I'm not, um, but as an anthropologist um, to write about people you don't like, which is a whole other sort of dimension, right? There's a difference between not agreeing with people and not liking people. Um, and and I've, I've thought about that many times since then. And the sort of question of um, how do we write about people we don't agree with and we don't like, and um, that goes back to um, one of Dr. West's early question about critique and deconstruction. So how do we critique? When is critique completely deconstructing someone else's work or project or ideas or practices? And I don't have really great answers to it. I have realized um, that when I move into a space where I do write about people I'm in real disagreement with, which is something that I'm um, currently doing with um, um, uh, work that, that looks at um, patriarchal ideas um, that reject LGBTQI plus inclusion. And obviously I'm not agreeing, but I'm also wondering about what purpose that critique might serve. And so I, 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 I see these as questions that I continually ask of my own scholarship. And um, again, there is privilege that I have in being able, for example, to incorporate those kinds of questions into what I write, which is something that I wasn't doing when I was a more junior scholar. So this possibility of saying, I'm just gonna lay out for all of you what the fault lines are here. Here are all the traps. Here are all the challenges. Here are the methodological challenges. Here is where I made certain types of choices. Here were the options that I had. Um, which is, I think one of the themes that I'm getting from today's conversation is that that makes me vulnerable but it is a calculated risk at this point in my career. It might not be for Dr. Wheeler. It might not be for, for um, Brittany. It might not be for Dr. Yacoub in the same way. And so I, I wanna acknowledge that, that I can now sort of consider the possibilities and the options that I have and the consequences those might have much more explicitly in my writing than I thought was possible um, in, in work that I did 15, 20 years ago. So I, um, I'm not a uh, anthropologist, uh, but I also don't work uh, with living communities. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I mostly have these texts written like almost a thousand years ago that I, um, that I read, but, but, you know, so, but one of the things that I was thinking about is that, so uh, 
my husband and I recently co-founded with uh, uh, several of our other friends an organization called Muslim Debt Collective. The idea is to relieve uh, Muslims who are uh, um, in financially vulnerable situations to uh, bring communal efforts towards relieving their debt. So in relation to that, uh, being a part of the Muslim community, I have endless conversations with people about precisely these kinds of things, right? Of, is your money your own? Like I work really hard for my money. They, you know, they're making bad decisions, right? Like all of these kinds of things that come up as we're talking about the work um, that this uh, collective does. And part of what I find is that I feel no hesitance in really pushing back because, and I think part of it is that because that work that I'm doing, I don't see as part of my scholarly work. And so at that moment, I am fully a part of that community and trying to shift it and shape it in particular ways. But then when it comes to certain aspects of what I see as my scholarly work, there's a way in which I see myself as part of the community in when I'm having these conversations with them about Islamic law, but at the same time, somehow oddly distant from them because I am a scholar. Uh, and I need, and so, so somehow the idea of being a scholar, a scholar means that there needs to be some kind of distance, there needs to be some kind of, uh, you know, participatory, or this observational role that you have, uh, your participation in the community, almost as though the community becomes this petri dish that you don't want to mess up too much by, you know, engaging with it. So, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's just really interesting uh, how it is that we think about what it means to be a scholar, which then really shapes the ways in which we feel when we then enter into those communities. Um, are, you know, for me, it, in some ways, I, in, or in one aspect of the work that I do, I see myself as fully embedded in that community and have no problem pushing back. And then all of a sudden I start to feel like, well, I don't, you know, that's what you think, that this is my scholarly analysis, right? So it's really for me, I mean, I don't really have any answers, but for me, it's really the, the the, the different ways that I approach both of those kind of works brought for me uh, to the fore, this question that I thought I had figured out but haven't fully really is what does it mean to be a scholar uh, in relation to communities that I am emerging from and see myself as a part of. Excellent. Well, I think that Dr. West might have to leave um, as she's uh, teaching a class, which is really commendable. I'm so grateful for her to be here. If there, we do have a little bit of time if there's one more question. Um, if not, um, I think that we will wrap up. So if anyone has one last question, please feel free to put it in the chat. Um, the, it's very difficult. I'm from the Midwest and so it's so difficult to deal with the Zoom silence. Um, <laughs> I feel like I was really giving it a little bit of time there, but um, maybe for just in the sake of ending on a very high note um, with all the wonderful insights. I'm going to go back and like reread your book tonight um, because I feel like it's also I'm, I'm in the middle of grant writing. So this is and I guess exams. So it's a particularly productive um, conversation for me. Um, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for reading, for being here. Um, thanks, everyone in the audience. Um, I know it's even more disembodied. Um, but I learned a lot. I took lots of notes. And um, at least with 
um, my co-panelists, um, I do want to have more conversation about all of this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feminist Talk Religion, a Feminist Studies and Religion Forum branch project. Feminist Studies and Religion works to center and connect feminists in religious studies through its various platforms, including a journal, books, blog, and forum. We appreciate your engagement with FSR's branches, especially with the forum's podcast, and would love your financial support. You can donate at www.fsrinc.org donate. That's www.fsrinc.org donate. We wish to express our thanks to all who have contributed to the Feminist Talk Religion podcast. Special appreciation goes to Oluwatumisin Oridane, Sarah Emanuel, Midori Hartman, and Susan Wooliver for their leadership and committee efforts. Thanks goes to Sydney Keplin for her editorial work, Thomas Lejoie and Scott Jackson for creating the music used for this podcast, and Kimmy Monty, Christy Cobb, and Owen Cobb for their creative work on the intro dialogue. Thanks also goes to the interns of Feminist Studies and Religion, Inc. for their work on promoting this project.